0: Well, there's an old little joke, it's probably not that funny, but the, it asked the question, it says, hey, two presidential candidates are lost at sea, who gets saved? The answer, America. Well, we are in this uh, time of great consternation of, uh, as we've talked about uh, in weeks prior to this, of great division, of rancor, of anger where we're fractured in so many ways even families are fractured how many of you are like wanting to avoid the Thanksgiving get-together this year you're thankful for a lot but you want to avoid that person or those people or maybe uh they they want to avoid you ever thought about that but we've got some listen to what the world doesn't need is uh, more jerks for Jesus okay so I'm talking to some of you out there I'm talking to some of you not not you but yeah, you, talking to some of y'all about what we need. But my hope is after today that you would leave here maybe a little upset, maybe a little challenged, maybe with your fingers on your keyboard ready to send me an email to upset my pastor's nap today. But no, for real, I, I hope you would leave here uh, hopeful and wanting to be more, more engaged, okay, but, but rightly engaged. And so next week, I think this is a two-part series. It could turn into three. It could turn into one, and I could leave town quickly but uh I think what we 'll do today uh, what we 'll do next week will probably be a uh, practical we 'll talk uh from from a passage of the Bible that 's often overlooked and many times misunderstood, but I think speaks to us so poignantly today, looking forward to that and it'll be it 'll be practical today I want to give you um eight myths okay that 's your cue for note takers I want to give you eight myths that lead us to being obnoxious. And so these are eight myths, things that aren't true about our political world, about government, about stuff today. And I want to challenge you with these eight. We're going to roll through them. I won't spend as much time or equal time on on every point. So stay with me. We'll honor uh, the time as we've already done uh, this morning, whether you're here or whether you're tuning in from home or somewhere else. So all right, note takers and earnest listeners, here we are. The first myth is this. The myth is that government will solve the big problems. Government will solve all the big problems. Government will fully solve all the big problems. Now, in the Bible, God has ordained three institutions god himself has established three institutions not out loud but just to yourself and engage your own uh, intelligence in this regard but can you name those three institutions what are those what would what would your guess be that three institutions no more than that three institutions established ordained by god government you probably could have gotten that family and can you think of the third the church Hopefully, you get that. God, family, and the church. Listen, all three play a vital role. All three have function. Now, the Bible teaches us, you can capture this from old to new, particularly in the inspired writings of this brilliant man named the Apostle Paul. But the the role of government is to demonstrate justice around the world, to protect the lives of innocent people, and to restrain evil forces. I'll try to say that one more time. The role of government, according to the Bible, is to demonstrate justice to the world, to protect the innocent, and then to restrain the forces of evil. That's pretty cool, isn't it? If government works properly. If we're led by competent leaders, and I would add leaders of good character. In fact, God would add leaders of good character. So government is one of the three spheres, if you will, established by God. What are the three? Government, family, and the church. All three are vital. And hear me now. If one underperforms. It cannot be compensated for by overactivity in the other. Think about that. Government, hyperactivity, government involvement, even if it's compassionate, government involvement can be no substitute for a delinquent father. You with me? Now the church steps in and the church should step in. Listen, here's what's great. This does my heart so good, y'all. Every single Sunday morning, when I look at these pews, 9.30 and 11, I see that take place. I see people who are adopting, who are fostering, who are mentoring, who are standing in the gap. That is a good and beautiful thing. But God ordained family, church, government to all play a role in this. And the myth is that government will solve the big problems government is limited what can government not do now government can do many good things it can demonstrate justice throughout the world it can protect the lives of innocent people it should it should restrain the forces of evil but while government can restrain the forces of evil government cannot remove evil while government can encourage the acquisition of virtue the government cannot fully form virtue and a love of righteousness in our hearts government is limited that is why if you allow me now there's a difference we'll talk about this next week but there's a difference between patriotism and nationalism I believe one can be very good very welcoming I would say very needed when I go visit Mr. Earl Darrington a former member of Woodland Hills Baptist Church you hear me preach about him he's now a member of Fondra Church many of you have not met him some of you have when you meet him you don't forget him he's 95 years old we buried his wife Pauline of almost 70 years this spring during COVID He's a POW, Prisoner of War, Battle of the Bulge, World War II. Mr. Earl Darrington loves his country. And when he talks to us, he tells us we live in the greatest land in America. I'm not going to break into Lee Greenwood, but I'm just telling you, I love our country. And when I think about this myth that government will solve the big problems, I'm thankful for our country, and I'm thankful our country with all of its flaws, with a Some unpleasant realities in our history. I thank God for our Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Can you name those freedoms? Listen, I'm not going to be judgy or arrogant but we all should be able to stand up and name every freedom listed in the Bill of Rights don't you think I mean the freedom of religion the freedom of assembly the freedom of the right to bear arms the freedom of equal justice the freedom of petition all these things on and on these freedoms that the Bill of Rights and the Constitution gives us and the very idea in our country we're just one nation again nationalism can be very dangerous it's affecting the political climate of America today patriotism can be such a good thing you got to hold it loosely you have to see it rightly and justly but our country with the insight and they fought y'all listen political infighting is not new our forefathers fought when they were drafting the constitution and inserting the bill of rights they this is missing and this is missing they had political debate and dialogue back then they just didn't they weren't like many of us who you know were uh, without a journalism degree you got a smartphone you're automatically a journalist you know you have a smartphone some of you have the attention span of a goldfish that smartphone has a camera that's mostly pointing back to you we have new tools to spread our toxicity but the people who founded this nation in particular with great sacrifice many flaws set up a system of government implicit understanding biblical values the Judeo Christian ethic saying that government will solve the big problems is is a myth. We need the church, we need the family. One more time, all should play a vital role. All are needed, but the inactivity of one, the delinquency of one cannot be overridden by the the substitute of the other two. The second myth is this. One of the most misunderstood in our day, we can fight about it later, politics and religion don't mix had someone tell me this week, in fact, I was walking to work today and they, they saw me, made fun of my jacket, honked at me, and told me I shouldn't be preaching about politics. But for real, over, uh, over a quick conversation at a sporting event this week, uh, someone told me, hey, you know, Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul didn't do a lot to overthrow the Roman government. So what are we doing today with politics and religion? The idea there is an old idea and it's held by a lot of people today. We're funny fuzzy confused about this but the idea there is that it kind of goes back to the first one politics that is government is big and it can solve the big problems politics or religion rather is little so because of religion it should be it should be privatized and compartmentalized it should be silent and submissive religion is best when it's silent and submissive so I want to enjoin four uh, people ideas to you, groups of people ideas to you in regard to this argument of debunking the myth. This is what I'm doing. I'm a, I'm a myth buster today, and debunking or busting this myth, politics and religion don't mix. I want to quickly talk about the prophets, about Jesus. I want to give you a, prof- a quote from a Harvard professor, and then uh, mention briefly Harriet Beecher Stowe. First of all, consider the prophets. We could, we could go all day on this one, but I'll just, I'll just mention Um, a few of them. Elijah was called a troublemaker by King Ahab. Daniel was thrown into a lion's den by King Nebuchadnezzar. John the Baptist, also a prophet, a New Testament prophet. He had his head put on a platter by John the Baptist. Now think about that. Again, we could go all day in the Bible on this one, but I just mentioned three. Elijah, Daniel, John the Baptist, you would call that religion. Those were men of faith, trailblazers, if you will. They were prophets. Uh, King Ahab, King Nebuchadnezzar, King Herod. You can study about them in detail. Historically, this represents politics. It was politics of their day. They were large and they were in charge. But these prophets do what prophets do. By the way, today there's a gift of prophecy. A lot of misunderstanding around this, but the church should have a prophetic role in our society today we are not called to be silent and submissive your faith should be deeply personal but never private and by the way i wonder just i'll rattle cages ruffle some feathers early today but man if some of you talked about your faith the way you talk about your political party we'd be a better world i wish some of you were as bold to talk about jesus as you do your candidate whether you're woke or not woke. I mean, if you, I mean, Jesus, you know? But here's the thing. These prophets spoke up. John the Baptist, in particular, spoke up about Herod sleeping with his own brother's wife. He spoke about the injustices of the Roman soldiers. There ought to be police reform, John the Baptist said. I imagine if he was in the church today, I imagine Christians would say, hey, hey, John, stick to the church stuff. Do you know, don't lose sight of this. Now, faith in Christ transcends anything political. We'll get there at the end, anything political. But the statement, Jesus is Lord, is political. Jesus himself, listen, he didn't just come, no matter what you were taught in Sunday school, Jesus didn't just come and go straight to the cross. Even the last week of his life, he opposed corruption and hypocrisy. Listen, folks, this is a myth that politics and religion don't mix. A Harvard professor put it this way. He was talking about how faith informs politics, how politics and government and society and culture needs people of faith to engage in the larger world you believe that here's what this harvard professor said you can't argue with a harvard professor come on the reason where'd y'all go to college say where you went to college out loud okay yeah none of y'all can argue with this guy all right the reason democracy works is not because government was designed to oversee what everyone does but democracy works because most people voluntarily obey the law if you take away religion you can't hire enough police. A few nights ago, we had suspicious activity on our street, and I was thankful for people watching and people making the observation and making the call. I was thankful for law enforcement. Nothing went down, but it could have gone down, but it was just one person possibly doing something wrong, and everybody else on our street was just probably living a quiet life. You with me? And so, I appreciate what the Harvard professor is saying. A woman that probably we've all heard of, Harriet Beecher Stowe, she was born in 1811. She was one of many children and her father was a minister. I love stories like this. Her father would encourage all the siblings to hang out around the dinner table and have lively debate on government, civility, politics, and such. He encouraged that, and he envisioned that all of his children would grow up to be leaders, servant leaders, who would shape the world. All of Harriet Beecher Stowe's brothers became pastors. One of her sisters began the National Woman's Suffrage Movement Association. Harriet Beecher Stowe, as you know, wrote the 19th century, next to the Bible, the 19th century's bestseller. She wrote... Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uncle Tom's Cabin is credited with being a chief catalyst in the Civil War and the liberation of slaves. Adding credence to this notion of her writing, her inspiration, by the way, as a woman back then, you know that she could not vote, she could not hold office, she could not have a voice, but she had a pen. And she had a vision of America. And she had, as one writer said about her, an insight to the nation's soul. Abraham Lincoln met her, and he probably wasn't completely politically correct, but he said to Harriet Beecher Stowe when he met her, Oh, you're the little woman who got this war started. She was powerful. She wrote that in her 40s, for the time became rich off of of it, but think of the influence. As people have studied the life of Harriet Beecher Stowe and this great work, Uncle Tom's Cabin, people have said things like this. What drove her writing? What drove her to write? what What was the impetus? What was the motivation? It was she was guided principally by her Christian faith. Myth number two, politics and religion don't mix. I want to bust that myth today. Hope I did. Myth number three is this. God is sovereign. It doesn't matter who is elected. Now, this is the lazy person. This is... This is the person who likes to keep the peace at all times. These are the people that hate conflict. These are people who are tired of the fighting. These are people who just want to cook the Thanksgiving turkey and dress and have everybody over. Maybe talk about the egg bowl, but don't talk about God and religion at all. Look, God is sovereign. It doesn't matter who is elected. Can I say, as I am saying, that that is a myth. Look, if that, is, if that reason is valid, then we would never evangelize or fasten our seatbelts. God works through people who work. You ever thought about that? God works through people who work. My Friday morning men's group in my office, 10 men sat around me early this Friday morning and the chapter was on willpower. We're looking at Mark Battison's book, Play the Man and the chapter was on willpower. It had a lot to do with exerting influence and overcoming temptation and it, it, it was uncomfortable for a few of the men to talk about rolling up our sleeves and taking responsibility as if it's just a let go and let God. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and shriveling. You'll never earn your salvation. No one in the room is good enough to earn their salvation. The gap between sinful man and a holy God is too great. No one can earn that but we are to work out our salvation we are to take responsibility one more time God works through those who work so how do we work I would say to you that this is a myth yes God is sovereign we're going to get there but I think it does matter who is elected I want to encourage every person particularly every follower of Jesus, not to be a jerk for Jesus, but to work. So how do you work? If God works through those who work, how do we work in this season? I'm going to state some very obvious things, but as your pastor, if I am your pastor, I want you to hear them from me today. I think you should pray. I think you should study and become informed. And some of y'all need to quick retweeting and sending articles that you haven't even clicked on yourself. Study and have some depth and have some perception and don't go so fast. There's a ton of information out there and we're spreading. Look, you're called to not bear false witness. You know that that tenth, that eighth commandment of the 10th, you know that's still in play? You know God, still that still matters to him. In fact, in Proverbs 6, it says there are six things, seven things that God hates, seven things that are detestable to him. A lying tongue is one of them, uh, one who spreads false information. Like, don't do that, and you're going to do that if you don't slow down. I may have been guilty a time or two in my, in my youth with this, but God is sovereign. It doesn't matter who, who is elected. It does. God works through those who work, so study, learn, become informed, volunteer, vote, and pray. Now, is there a verse in the Bible that says vote? Any guesses there? I don't believe there is. I don't think there's a verse in the Bible that says vote or vote for. Now, I'm going to tell you all who to vote for at the end of the sermon. Y'all know I'm going to do, do that. But there's no verse that says vote. But listen, let me, let me, let me pick this passage. There's so many I could. But James 4.17, James, remember the half-brother Jesus, didn't believe in Jesus at first, and then his life was changed. James 4.17 says, to him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him slash them, It is sin. You know you should vote. we should vote. go vote. You, you should also pray, First Timothy chapter two, verse one, and two. Paul offers this. Paul says, and stay tuned for in a second for the powerful truth behind this, but Paul says that we should offer prayers, petition, intercession, and thanksgiving for all people. Kings and all those in authority. One more time, we should offer prayers, petition, intercession, thanksgiving for all people, including kings and everyone who's elected. Who wrote that? Paul to Timothy. We studied Timothy this summer, the first book, first letter to the young church planter. He wrote that to him and therefore to us. But Paul wrote it in the first century. Who was the king? We can't name who everyone was or all those in authority, but who was the king? Y'all know Nero. How did Paul die? Who killed Paul? Nero. Offer prayers, petition, intercession and thanksgiving. Now you not, may not believe the Bible, you may not want to follow the teachings of Jesus. It recorded for us in the Bible, but the Bible is very clear. That historical fact alone says that you ought to pray for everybody including all of the leaders and that is petition specific that is intercession and that is thanksgiving and that is really hard don't be mad at me i just want to drop it right there but there is a myth that god is sovereign it doesn't matter who is elected i think it does matter who is elected prayer breakfast may of 2011 president obama said these words i read them in retrospect A few years back when I was battling loneliness and here's what he said it meant a lot to me and like all of us this is standing in front of religious leaders and a lot of people my faith journey has had its twists and turns it hasn't always been a straight line I have thanked God for the joys of parenthood and Michelle's willingness to put up with me in the wake of failures and disappointments I've questioned what God had in store for me, and had been reminded that God's plan for us may not always match our own short-sighted desires. And let me tell you, these past few years, they have deepened my faith. The presidency has a funny way of making a person feel the need to pray. I say to y'all, man, our elected officials matter. They shape politics. And politics, even though it's kind of a dirty word, it's a very dirty word for some people. Politics is ultimately about people. And the kind of people matter. Let's work. Let's vote. Let's pray. And let's pray that people who get elected are people who pray. The fourth myth that I want to bust to you this morning is the church should speak up on every important issue. Last week, I met with two pastors who are quitting their jobs. It's just been a very difficult season. A few months ago, I read a national pastor who said there's gonna be a lot of pastors quitting their jobs. And in one week, in three-day stretch, I met two who were quitting. Part of their pain is the pressure they feel to be everything for everyone and then we're so darn almost want to say another word divided we should speak up you remember what we said earlier politics and religion it's a myth to say that they don't they don't mix we need to have a prophetic voice look it is my job to preach the whole counsel of God and ultimately seek the salvation of the souls of people through Jesus Christ. But to have a prophetic voice and speak on issues, issues matter not because they're political issues, but because they're God issues. The sanctity of life, immigration, uh, these are powerful issues. Safety, welfare, children unity, all these things are very, very important, and we address them not for political motives. Look, I'm a flawed person. I'll own that, but our motivation should always be first, beginning, in, middle, all the way through, biblical and godly, but stay with me a second. There was a time in the life of Jesus, Jesus' Lord was a political statement. I'm not contradicting an earlier myth that I've hopefully busted. I want you to see the full orb of what I'm talking about. But there was a time in Luke chapter 12, write, that, write this down if you're a note taker, Luke 12, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Y'all awake at the house there, write that down, Luke 12, 13 to 14. Jesus had a man ask him a question, and he said, hey, Jesus, would you tell me how we should divide the inheritance, me and my brothers? This was a question that, that let me translate it. It was a social justice issue question. And Jesus did not answer the question. Jesus did not, it, not because Jesus didn't care, follow this for a second, not because he didn't care, he didn't want to be identified with this, and he didn't want to be tangled up in it. There are times where the church, and specifically me here as, as, as a pastor, I don't want to be identified with and tangled up. We prayerfully hear from you, we're watching our society and our culture, we understand our central message, and there are times when we speak up. Y'all know what Ecclesiastes 3 says, there's a time to be born, a time to die a time to hate, a time to love, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to make peace, a time to make war, a time to gather, a time to throw out, a cast down. There's all kind of times, 28 are mentioned in Ecclesiastes 3, and there's a time to speak, and there's a time to not speak. And Jesus embodied that. And Jesus wants his church to know. He wants his shepherds to know this that we can be wrongly identified with and therefore tangled up with something and here's what's going to happen. We will hurt the mission of the church. The, the, we'll mute our message and our witness in the world if we're not careful. So what did Jesus do in Luke 12? He didn't answer the social justice question at that time. But he told a story, and it was a larger story. It's a phenomenal story. He said, when he began the story by saying, beware of those who struggle with greed. And Luke 12, verse 15 to 21, he tells the parable of the man who whose harvest crop yielded an abundant supply. And this man, what did he do? He said, I'm gonna store it up. I've got so much, I'm gonna build bigger barns. And Jesus wanted us to know that greed will kill us and greed will hurt the world. Y'all, we have so much wealth and privilege in this world and so many other people in need and that parable needs to be told. And so let's learn from Jesus. And this is a myth that the church, i.e. my pastor, should speak up on every important issue. Somebody say amen I'll go to the fifth myth. All right. Do you agree with that? Or are you just saying that? You're just saying it. Okay. Myth number five. If you're a good Christian, then you, then you vote blank. Now, y'all know this season, there are those churches. I'm not standing up here to judge them. I just want to tell you about our church. I think I have the full support of our elder team. Our church is led by a plurality of leaders. And I think I represent us when I say this. We're not the church saying, here are all the issues. Pick up your scorecard when you leave, and this will tell you how to vote. I think this is a myth. I love and have respect for a lot of churches and pastors and communities of faith. But I think this is a myth. When you look at someone and say, if you're a good Christian, then you'll vote Republican. If you're a good Christian, then you'll vote Democrat. When people ask me, and almost none of you have, but when people ask me, Robert, are you Republican or Democrat? Are you a liberal or a conservative? You know what I say? I always say, on what issue? I'm not trying to be slippery. I just realized that God has called me to lead Fondren Church in this neighborhood at this time for the glory of God and the good of our community to not be down with one party, one person. And I honestly believe, this is my conviction. I'm not gonna argue with anybody about it. I'll listen to your side. If you think I'm wrong, I'll read your email. But I honestly don't believe that God is down with one person and one party. I don't think one person and one party on every issue that matter to the heart of God, I don't think it is embodied in the life and teachings of Jesus and, the, and the, the scriptures that he has given us. I don't, I don't think so. I think every party and every person falls short. And I think this is a myth to say, if you're a good Christian, then you vote blank. It's getting warm in here, isn't it? Myth number six, I'll go on. The way we get what we want is to get our people in office. There's a book out there called, it's written by a man named James Davidson. James Davidson. And it's called To Change the Culture. To, I'm sorry, To Change the World. And in this book, he talks about the different forms of power. Everybody wants some power, don't they? If Listen, that's what I love about about the life of Jesus. He had a group of ragtag men who followed him closely. And they, to the end of his earthly life, they just didn't get it. They They, they followed him. They were amazed by him. They worshiped him. They did everything with him, but they still didn't get him. And they were like, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to sit at your right hand? They wanted power. Anybody power hungry, don't raise your hand. You'll look really bad. But everybody in the house or at home, everybody struggles with that. Your angle, your ego, your agenda, wanting power. And in this book, To Change the World, James Davidson says that when a society, this is so apropos, hear me, when a society gets really divided and fractured, you know what people go for? What kind of power? Political power. Because I think, I think he's right. Because political power, as he says in his words, it's the only lever that you can pull for coercion. You with me? I want a guy who says you got to wear a mask. Because if I get that guy or gal and they say mask, everybody's wearing a mask and I get my way. And I think that's safe. It's getting warm in here. You with me? So political power is the one lever when we pull it, I get my way. I get my people elected, and I get what I want. But listen to me. If you think that political power is the ultimate power, you have missed the teachings of Jesus. Israel had many kings. They had kings. They had some good kings. Unfortunately, they had some bad kings. They had some downright evil kings. And these kings would come and go. And they, on so many levels, led poorly. And they would be replaced by other kings. And then they would lose their kingdom. They would be in exile. And they would languish in a foreign land. And then something began, something unique began to percolate in the hearts and minds of some people. Some prophets inspired by God. Let's pick on Isaiah. Isaiah in particular said, look, there is a king that is greater than any earthly kingdom. You know, Israel had king envy. Israel didn't have a king. They had a book. They had a book that shaped them, that formed their laws and how they loved and how they led their families and how they got along and what would happen to criminals and how they would police each other. They had a book. But they didn't have a king and they had king envy. They wanted a king. Well, God gave them a king. They put their, their hope in putting the right person in office to get their way, and it didn't work. But Isaiah said in Isaiah 9 6, for a child, for unto us a child is born. Speaking in the future, a child is born, a son is given. What's the next line? Anybody know? And the government will be on his shoulders. And listen to the language of longing. When you're wanting, when you're fractured and divided and politics isn't delivering on its promises, I, I put on Instagram, come to church this morning, everybody gets a free golden retriever. I can't give you a golden retriever. I'm just trying to act like a politician. But when politics doesn't deliver what we want, listen to the longing that Isaiah, for unto us a son, is, a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. He will be the wonderful counselor the everlasting God. Oh, the language of longing for a Savior. What can wash away my sin? What can bring us together? What can produce love and joy in our hearts? No earthly king can, but Jesus can. And Jesus did not have an army. He did not have a budget. He did not have campaign funds. There was no need for campaign finance reform. In fact, he didn't have wealth. He didn't have warriors or soldiers. He couldn't pull a lever for, well he could, but he chose not to pull a lever with political power. He would go on meet the depressed and he would not cite his polls and predict his victory. In fact, Jesus the king predicted his own death. The way we get what we want is to get our people in office you want to know how not to be obnoxious bust this myth in your own life myth number seven will speed up and round toward home having the correct political viewpoint is the best indicator of being a good person are you blank are you enlightened are you with us we move so fast, we're, we all live on the surface. We live socially online. We're having very few conversations with people of different viewpoints. We're assuming the worst motive in others. We're given characters of the opposing side. Having the correct political viewpoint is the best indicator of being a good person. Folks, it's not. Having the character of Christ is the best indicator of being a good person. Let's talk for a moment about the character of Christ because we need it today. And you follow Jesus and you'll be able to talk about politics without being so obnoxious. I'm talking to you. No no, you. Jesus walks through Jericho. Anybody gone to the Holy Land? I'm going to take a trip. I'm making promises I probably won't keep. Next year we're going to the Holy Land. You guys pay me Four thousand dollars each, and I'll take you there and give you a tour. I was at Jericho a couple years ago, and we stood by these sycamore trees, and we're pretty sure this is where the story went down. But Zacchaeus, who had wealth and privilege, he had the position, but he was hated, demonized and vilified. Zacchaeus was a short man. And the short man, Zacchaeus, heard Jesus was coming to town. And y'all know this, right? Any of you Sunday school people? Zacchaeus did what? He climbed the sycamore tree so he could get a look at Jesus. This man, this tax collector, hated because of his job. He might have been hated because of the way he did his job. But when you're collecting money for people, I mean, if you, if you work for the IRS, you're not the most popular person in town, right? So this is Zacchaeus. He's up the tree. He wants to get us, he wants to see what the fuss is about. This radically inclusive love from a savior. And this man hated, demonized, vilified. Something shocking happened. Jesus sees him and says to him, some of my favorite words in the Bible, he says, hurry up, come down. I must stay at your house. I love that. It's almost like Jesus won a mission from his father. I must stay at your house. Radical hospitality back then. And Jesus says, come here. And you know, when he stayed at his house, he dined with him. So hear me this morning, because we got, what, 15 days, 16 days to this election. You need to hear this now more than ever. Jesus loves people that other people hate. Jesus loves you and the people who disagree with you. If you are a flaming liberal, Jesus loves the conservative if you're a die-hard conservative Jesus loves the liberal if you live in elite coastal city Jesus loves the people that live in the flyover states if you live in one of those I guess we all do in one of those rural flyover states Jesus loves the people on on the coast he he loves the people on the coast some of you talk bad about my wife's home state I don't even know why you do like you're being obnoxious like, it's, it's mean and hateful and politically motivated. It's just, it's dumb. So stop. But Jesus loves, everybody, Jesus loves immigrants and refugees. Jesus loves LeBron James and the NBA. Jesus has no need for guns, but he loves members of the NRA. Jesus loves Republicans, Democrats, Conservatives, Liberals, the Green Party, the Purple Party, the Tea Party, the Diet Coke Party. Jesus loves everyone, and we need to get that right. Do you realize how much obnoxiousness would just be drip, it would just, it would just move out of your life if you realize that. But why does that get lost in our social media posts? Why? Does that get amped up? Why does your anxiety go through the roof? See see a few of the other myths that we put up. Maybe maybe the answer is back there. And one of those six, there's a group that just started a couple of years ago. I don't know if they have hats, but the group is called, stay with me for a second, called uh, Make America Dinner Again. And it's, it's in... Pacific Northwest states, I think Denver has one, Seattle, Portland, places like this. Started by some Christians. And here's their idea, I love this, just read about it this week. Make America dinner again. And the idea that they have is that there's plenty of avenues, plenty of venues for protest, fighting, hatred, voting, donating, volunteering, plenty of those venues. But there's very little avenues for people with divergent political viewpoints to come together and have respectful, guided conversations. So make America great again. Do we need one here? Make America great again. Get six to 10 people, small groups, the power. In church, we say get out of rows and into circles. But the power of the small group, six to 10 people to sit around a table. They're respectful, guided conversations with people who have different political viewpoints. Look, online living dehumanizes other people it does but you have face-to-face conversations and things change Sean and atia Sinclair sat here with me this summer we talked about race and faith and they quoted one of their favorite other pastor I'm their favorite pastor but they quoted one of their other favorite pastors and saying that proximity breeds relationship and distance breeds contempt so being in circles together look it's not about having the correct political viewpoint that's not the best indicator some of you are ghosting people you're canceling people you're be- you're unfriending them you're muting them deleting them because they don't have the same political viewpoint as you when you first read that, you thought, I don't have this problem. No, <laughs> Love, man, it's about love. But if you're ghosting, deleting, blocking, muting, and canceling, you've got the problem. So listen to this myth. Myth number eight, and this is the final one. Myth number eight, this is the most important election in our lifetime. You, you mad at me now? You mad at me? Listen to me. I can't prove that it's not, but you can't prove that it is. The problem is, some of you are trying to prove that it is. And I guess now I'm trying to prove that it's not. What's just happened here? I'm not sure. Anyway, this to me is on par with this. This is the most important election in our lifetime. Is on par with what's-his-name Chris Rose from The Bachelor saying, this is the most dramatic episode of The Bachelor ever. Now, you can't say that. I tell pastors sometimes, I I told a group of young pastors the other day, like, you know, we follow each other on social media. Like, man, if everything is amazing and incredible and unprecedented and awesome, then nothing is, right? So we just, sometimes we just say, hey, I'm doing a sermon series on politics. Y'all may want to come. You probably want to stay home. It's not, it's not the most dramatic season in bachelor history. And I don't think, I'm welcome for you to argue. We're not, we're not in the Bible here. This is the most important election in our lifetime. I would say no. I would, I, I would say no. So let me ask you, as anxiety goes up, as divisions deepen, as families get fractured, as churches possibly get smaller, not fondering, but other churches, who is not on the ballot November 3rd? I'm going to tell you, God. You know who else is not on the ballad November 3rd? Satan. You know who is on the ballad November 3rd? Two ordinary, flawed men. Let's, let's pull back and take a panoramic shot of where we're living. We're on the third rock from the sun. We are floating, making a trip around the sun today. Anybody thank God for that trip? Scientists tell us, I love science. I love all truth. I think we've damaged our faith in some ways by not respecting science this year. I love science. Scientists tell us that if we were 1% closer to the sun, we'd burn up. If we were 1.5% away from the sun, we'd freeze to death. NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab tells us that there's meteors passing Earth all the time. They could hit us and knock us out. You know, you know some of those football hits you saw yesterday, some of those collisions? That could happen to us. But it doesn't. It hasn't. Anybody thank God for that? No, because you're worried about the election, right? So stay with me for a second. Is God, okay, God's not on the ballot, Satan's not on the ballot, and y'all know I'm getting in trouble for saying this. I just said to you, two ordinary flawed men are on the ballot. Go back. But here's the thing. Do you think God is up in heaven chewing his fingernails and thinking, out of all the billions of stars and planets and cancellations and galaxies on this one planet Earth in this one nation called the United States in this four year seasonal cycle, that oh no, we might vote for and elect the second best person for all of us and not the first best person for all of us. Oh myself, because he's God remember, oh myself, what am I gonna do? choo 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 on the fingernails anybody want to offer a guess to that like if you say yes to that then your view of god is man you've got a manageable god in your box of political ideological preference but that's not our god and god ain't worried about that listen to me presidents come and go Governments rise and fall. Elections are won and lost. Administrations begin and end. Political parties ebb and flow. But I close this morning with this very idea, this statement right here. I leave you with whoever becomes president, Jesus remains king. Does Lauren and the team come? Let me pray over us. We'll post these eight, if you didn't take notes or take pictures of them, if you care to see them again. But I would challenge you, if I am your pastor, maybe I have a little more voice in your life. If you're visiting today in person or online, uh, I would challenge you, whether you're a person of faith in Jesus or not, serious in your devotion to him or a cynic, a skeptic, a seeker, that you would think about these myths. Anytime we're anxious, it points to something below the anxiety. Just like anger. Anytime you're angry, it's a secondary emotion. And when you're anxious, there's probably something else below the surface. And I wonder what myth for you really, especially, needs to be busted. Would you ask our God today to shape you to maybe not be tangled up overly identified with even as you're passionate about if you're a leader you're for a follower Jesus can I say in love I want to challenge you today To think different, to be guided by love, even as you walk in truth, to be guided by love and mindful of opinions you share, convictions you hold, all to be placed in the hands of a sovereign God. Would you stand? Father, thank you for this time of worship and bless us in this season. God, we wanna right now pray for our leaders, for this election, for our homes, and God, I I wanna pray for all three spheres of this world, government, family, and churches. You've given us each. Can we, Lord, rise to the occasion of valuing them, appreciating them, knowing their proper place and elevating you above all. And just as some make their children their idols, some can put too much emphasis on government and its leaders. So would you help us today? Would you help us this week in the next couple of weeks and way beyond that. Convict us of our sin. Bring us to repentance. Lord, for the high anxiety that exists in some hearts today, I pray you minister your hope and truth. Whoever is president, Jesus is king.